The Triathlon Show, episode 300. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Nikki Winfield Almquist. Nikki is a researcher at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, and in this interview, we discuss the research that he did uh, regarding including sprints in otherwise low intensity and usually long endurance uh, workouts for cyclists and the effects that that has on performance, uh, as well as on acute muscular and hormonal responses to training. We'll get right into that after thanking our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. If you're preparing for any autumn races, then uh, getting your hydration on point is uh, really one of the crucial aspects that you should look into. Just as important as your pacing strategy and nutrition strategy, hydration can make or break your race. And Precision Hydration have plenty of resources to help you do that, including the free online sweat test that you can use to get a personalized hydration strategy. Also, remember that Precision Hydration now have their new Precision Fuel range that you can use to very easily get in carbohydrates without having to do very complicated math because their uh, gels all contain 30 grams of carbohydrate and uh, I should say that their energy products each serving contains 30 grams of carbohydrates so it makes it really easy to make sure that you know your numbers and hit your numbers. You can also book a free one-on-one consultation with the Precision Hydration team to refine your hydration and fueling strategy. Use the promo code DEATTRAFFLONSHOW15 to get 15% off your first order of precision hydration electrolytes or precision fuel. And thank you to Senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com. The Senate Swim Trainer is an indoor inflatable bench that you can use to practice swimming away from the pool. You can work on specific aspects of technique, strength, power, and stamina, and it can be a great and time-efficient way that you can complement the training that you would otherwise do in the pool and open water, but without the struggle of having to find all that additional time for uh, commuting and uh, potentially even in these days where many pools still have somewhat restricted access scheduling uh, scheduling an hour that you can be there and so on so it's a great complement to that in water swimming and you can get an additional 20% off the currently ongoing summer sale taking the total discount of the Zenate Swim Trainer to more than 40% when you purchase the Swim Trainer on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS and add that coupon code that you'll get at that URL at checkout. Uh, be aware that this summer sale ends at the end of August, so uh, there's uh, a little time left to, to use it, but not that much. So be quick and get your Senate swim trainer. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Nikki Winfield Almquist. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Nikki. How are you doing this morning? Thank you, Michael. Uh, I'm doing well. Can you start by giving an introduction uh, of yourself to the audience? Tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Yes, of course. I'm uh, Dr. Nicky winfield Alpenquist, and I did my PhD under supervision of Professor Ben Reunerstad and Professor Evan Sandbach in Lillehammer in Norway. Um, currently, I'm a postdoc uh, position on the Professor Ben de Keens at the University of Copenhagen the Department of Nutrition, Exercise and Sports. So I kind of switch lanes and I'm in this section of molecular physiology, working with nutrition and performance, uh, where more it's worse, 
was performance oriented uh, mainly before. Um, mm. In my spare time, I'm a competing amateur cyclist, so I'm I'm pretty much into cycling uh, at the moment. <laughs> yeah, the listeners can't see it uh, listening to the podcast, but I can see that you have a a bike and a bike stand behind you. So uh, definitely was clear from the very start that uh, that's what you're into, and of course. Uh, if uh, when we go into your phd research we'll find out that uh, yeah on the academic side as well that's a big interest of yours um Indeed. so yeah let, let's let's get into that uh, you did several studies that then uh, com- comprised your phd and uh, i guess by and large you could say that the theme of it was introducing sprint training into cycling and how that impacts uh, adaptations and training response and performance so can you maybe just start by giving an overview of uh, of that work? Yeah, in- indeed. Um, so currently we have six papers uh, on this topic. And yeah, as you said, we're generally investigating the effects of including sprints during low-intensity sessions uh, in, in elite cyclists. Um, so in my PhD, we, we had three studies, three different studies, Um so just to give an overview, the first study was an acute study where we uh, saw the effects of repeating sets of three 30-second maximal sprints, one set each hour, uh, and they were riding for four hours. So they were only sprinting for the first three hours. Um, and then we so saw nine, what happened. nine 30-second sprints in total uh, during yeah, exactly. a four-hour low-intensity ride. Exactly. Um, and then we saw what happens during the session and what, what are the responses afterwards for the hormones and the muscle signaling and the recovery of muscle strength. And we'll get back to that later, I guess. Um, the second study, uh, we included sprints during a three-week transition period where cyclists usually decrease the training volume um, and usually also the intensity. So this introduces a, a high-intensity um, response or yeah stress uh, and the idea was that we, we thought that inclusion of sprints might help to maintain competition relevant performances such as sprint power and but also for instance 20 minute time trial power um, and we investigated that immediately after this three-week transition period uh, but we also revisited after six weeks into the following preparatory period to see how did it went afterwards um, so those were that was the second study, and the last study we did was that we investigated inclusion of sprints in lit sessions during a fourteen day training camp, where we usually increase the training volume um, of these elite cyclists. Yeah. So yeah, those two uh, latter studies uh, just to explain the context a little bit more, you would just basically investigate how in in typical scenarios that happen during the season uh, for example after the competitive phase when cyclists don't train a lot and mostly low intensity like if you can get a jump start on your season by still doing a little bit of the time intensity work by just including sprints and then of course the training camp is kind of self-explanatory uh, what, mm. what happens if you if you keep doing sprints in low intensity sessions uh, during a training camp, uh, basically an overload period. So yeah. uh, let's uh, let's perhaps start with uh, we, we can start with the first study uh, in in that order. So the the muscular, hormonal, and cardiovascular responses that you found. So can mm. you go into that? Um, I think if we if we started just focusing on what happens during uh, when, when you're introducing sprints during a low intensity session uh, or 
maybe in, even erase um, what happens, and and then we can go back go back to the hormones later on because it mixes well with the uh, with muscle signaling and uh, and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. yep. So, but yeah, the, what what happens during uh, prolonged cycling if you repeatedly sprint? Um, but, and that might also apply to uh, to race uh, specific, um, but yeah, but but may, but but not necessarily. We are scientists, and we, and we did not investigate these things in races, so <laughs> we cannot say that it's exactly the same. But maybe we get an idea of it. Um, so the thing is that when you repeat sets of sprints, uh, your sprint performance and the relative aerobic and anaerobic contributions are maintained. So the first set is equal to the third set. So they don't reduce their sprint power um, if they sprint early. Um, What do happens when you are riding a bike for a prolonged period is that you get less efficient. So your gross efficiency decreases. Um, And this might seem like performing sprints early early in a race, for instance, would reduce the gross efficiency faster. and of, of course, this should uh, preferably be avoided um, because it might increase, um, yeah, the energy expenditure during the race. Um, but interesting enough, that was whether or not you increase you you do sprints on during prolonged cycling, the gross efficiency decreases to the same amount. Um, anyhow, um, so that's basically what happens when you're riding for long times. Um, the mechanical effectiveness also decreases during prolonged cycling. Um, so it means that you get le- become less effective in the circular pedaling. Uh, so more forces work against the propulsive one. Uh, and of course, you don't want to do that, but that's a part of getting more fatigued. Um, and consequently, the muscular activation, we measured that with the EMG, um, increases in order to produce the same power output. Um, however, the sprinting does not affect uh, this differently than just riding at low intensity. Um, so sprint performance, to summarize it, is, is likely maintained, but you become less efficient uh, early. And hence, the, this might cost a bit more, despite uh, our cyclists at least did not report that in between sprints or at the end of exercise. So the rate of perceived exertion was the same. Um, so these decreases might, on the other hand, affect performance measures, uh, other performance measures, time trials and such. And we get back to that in the next studies, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, that's uh, that's really interesting. All all of that, and uh, yeah, and especially the the fact that you do get that decrease in gross efficiency even from just low intensity cycling, similarly to uh, if you include sprints. Um, so, so do you want to then get into so so what are the actual uh, acute responses that you see from the sprints when you introduce them into training, like you did in the the four hour low intensity session? Yeah, you mean uh, the hormonal responses and muscular responses? Yes, yes, yes. yes muscular, yeah. hormonal, and, and if there are any cardiovascular measures that you uh, that you measured. Yeah, we'll try to dive down to that. Um, so, what happens um, immediately after four-hour lit session with new include sprint is that um, on the hormonal level, uh, the responses are quite uh, quite the same. So generally, there was uh, only small differences between including sprints and not. 
uh, and the general endocrine stress response was quite low. So the growth hormone and cortisol levels were really low. Um, and this suggests that these kind of exercises are uh, of little stress uh, for elite cyclists. It's their habitual training routines. Um, and we did not see any evidence for a prolonged stress response when including sprints. So, of course, this needs further investigation of takes of sprinting for longer interventions. But acutely, we don't. We did not see huge differences in the hormonal responses when including sprints. Yeah, and uh, if I remember correctly from your paper, uh, just to because it's interesting, I think, and maybe something that not a lot of people are aware of, but. For cortisol, for example, you actually see a decrease in cortisol after training. Was was that right? Do I remember that correctly? Yeah. 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 And and that is not due to the training. That's due to the fact that we are when you wake up in the morning, your cortisol levels are quite high because you've been fasting for quite some time. So this is not because you are you are stressed. This is because you don't have you haven't been eating for quite a while. Um, and because our session was four hours and we continually fed them a lot of glucose um, yeah, or carbohydrates, uh, the, the cortisol levels will decrease. And we saw that in both uh, situations, whether we included sprints or not, we saw that the decrease was the same. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. I think we often hear though, and that's maybe in some just things that people throw around about endurance training, like myths that uh, are not correct. Is that uh, your endurance training increases cortisol, but clearly it depends on a lot of other factors, like yeah, have you, whether you're getting in carbohydrates and uh, what the time yeah. of day is, even things like that. Um, and and that's a good point that you make because you did feed them. I think they ended up consuming was it 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour for the four-hour session yeah and, um, yeah and yeah so, yeah, yeah. Sounds, sounds right yeah yeah and and also i think interesting to mention i think they averaged uh about 180 watts for four hours and these are elite cyclists mm -hmm. with vo2 max of i can't remember was it 70 or yeah, about 70 74 about, 73 yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, so a very low average power for for that level yeah. of athlete but still consuming yeah. uh, a lot of carbohydrate uh, so yeah. okay that's the hormonal response uh very interesting that there was a very little difference compared to just pure low intensity and yeah. what about the muscular responses yeah so regards to muscular responses um we did muscle samples before and immediately after um the four hour session and again three hours later uh, to see the responses, what happens inside the muscles. Uh, so we measured that on the mRNA, and that is uh, the response of the muscle to stimulus. So it's indicating which proteins the muscle cell want to make more of, but no, it's not necessarily what ends up being made, <laughs> you, you could say. Mm, yep. um, but anyhow, we evaluated 14 different genes and found that the responses were indeed different for several markers between the two. Um, sprinting and not sprinting um, and we saw the greater responses for pdk4 which is a fat metabolism marker and vgfa which is an angiogenesis marker and likewise for markers of protein turnover and myostatin and MERF one um, when you included sprints um, 
However, we also found decreased levels for markers of iron transporting uh, and mitochondrial marker PTC1 alpha. So our findings were not clear, not a clear cut response that favors sprinting. And of course, it makes this uh, a bit difficult to interpret in, in the long run. Yeah, no, exactly. There's some some positive changes and some uh, maybe negative changes there. So, so what what did you kind of conclude? What conclusions could you draw, or at least what further hypotheses could you make based on these findings and this study? Yeah. Um, interestingly, I I think it's been uh, there are more studies out there that actually find that sprint training affects the mitochondrial biogenesis as well uh, in a positive manner, mm. um, and it makes sense that it also uh, has something to do with with uh, the fat metabolism because as soon as you are done sprinting, your fat oxidation actually increases in order to regain or yeah to restore um your your glycolytic systems instead um so it makes sense that 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 would have a have have a good effect and also with the angiogenesis marker when you're sprinting you're reducing the oxygen tension and then you get a response on that you are hypoxic or so to speak. So that also is uh, is a signal to incur- increase vasculation. Um, but these are just, yeah, these are just indicators. Um, if you if you want to say anything about what actually happens, you need to investigate this um, on interventions, on longer interventions, where they repeatedly sprint from uh, several weeks instead. Um, so these are only markers, uh, as I would say. Yeah, no, exactly. It's important to make that distinction. This was a session done once, well, once in two conditions, with or without sprints, and then just seeing what markers you saw, but that's yeah. not necessarily an indication of what will happen. Yeah. Just for listeners that, that are not familiar with the terms, angiogenesis refers to basically formation of new uh, well, of new blood vessels, scapularization, and, and so on yeah. to, to help yeah. with blood, blood transport. And uh, yeah, mitochondrial biogenesis, formation of new mitochondria which uh, which is where energy production in the cells take place uh, just to to help uh, help understand Good the scientific summer. lingo um yeah. so so then if we move on to i guess the more performance oriented studies that you that you did first with the transition period after the uh, competition period uh, so again if you can repeat a little bit what you did there and, uh, yeah. and then we get into your findings of course. So we uh, we had a couple, of, a lot of uh, elite cyclists who went into a, tr- into a transition period of three weeks. That's a short period where they reduce the training load or total training load, but usually by re- reducing the training volume, but also intensity. So they many of them don't include any kind of high intense exercise. Um, so that was the idea. If we introduce sprinting in low intensity sessions. Uh, that would maintain some of the high intensity stimulus and possibly it would, ha- would have an effect on the performance. Uh, so what we found was that when the cyclist introduced sprints three, uh, only three times during uh, three weeks, we found that sprint performance um, was was improved. No, no big, uh, <laughs> no big surprise on that. But 
what we also found found was that that 20 minute time trial performance was maintained whereas not including sprints in the lit sessions led to a decrease in uh, 20 minute time trial performance um so and, and this difference was quite big between the two groups uh, wasn't it um for the sprint power that was eight percent uh, difference so the sprint group improved four percent and the control group decreased sprint power by four percent and for the 20 minute power that was a four percent difference um yeah so and this was also likely related to a concomitant decrease in fractional utilization of vo2 max um where we saw which we saw in in the control group as the sprint group maintained a high level um after the three weeks but interestingly enough during these three weeks of reduced volume we reduced the volume by 60 percent, so it was quite a lot and um, we did not see any changes in vo2 max or maximal aerobic power so that that was maintained during these three weeks however the power output at four millimoles of lactate uh, was decreased in both groups uh, by four to five percent so this is more likely related to uh, the reduced training load and is not affected by inclusion of spins. Yeah, so yeah. That it's a threshold marker, you could say. Yeah. Um, so, so just to clarify the the training protocol. So it, it was they did the same session essentially. They did once once per week. They included nine thirty second sprints, three sets of three times 30 seconds uh, in a yep. low, longer low intensity session so mm -hmm. so that's all they they did and the only difference between the the two groups so uh, and and i guess another thing to point out there is that the the idea there would be that sure a 30 second sprint is really hard but but compared to for example doing in, including more sort of high intensity interval sessions that are more traditional vo2 max intervals if you want to call them that uh, mm. it's still lesser load especially especially in terms of energy total energy expenditure yeah. you could say that it's a lot of lesser yeah. training load so so it's a yeah. sort of um cost effective way of potentially maintaining your performance through this transition period yeah yeah good point yeah and yeah and 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 then uh, uh, coming back to that point of so why, why did the 20 minute uh, power main be maintain itself in in the sprint group so you said that yeah it's uh, related to the the fractional utilization of vo2 max so vo2 max was not difference between the two groups but the the absolute the percentage of vo2 max that the sprint group could maintain over 20 minutes was higher than than exactly. the other group yeah exactly uh, yeah. so 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 what what conclusions can we can we draw from this what what do you think are the practical applications of, of this i think uh since we we don't really see an effect on on the measures in the more fresh state for instance vo to max uh, maximal aerobic power um but the thing where we the point where we see a difference between sprinting and not sprinting is in the gradually fatiguing state so when they're repeating their sprints, they are better at maintaining a high power um, on the sprints. And furthermore, after that, we perform the 20-minute time trial. So they've been sprinting and they're doing a view to max. And the, yeah, they've been basically riding for two hours and then they complete a 20-minute time trial. And that is when 
they are able to maintain a higher fraction of the VO2 max. And so in my opinion, this is really important. This is highly relevant for, for cyclists or yeah, probably also other endurance athletes that they can maintain the level um, when they are actually gradually fatiguing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, that's that's a very good point. Uh, so, so when they did this testing protocol, it started with a uh, with a blood lactate test, so a, a, a ramp yeah. uh, with lactate testing, and then in the and then with just a little bit of rest, they did a, a VO two max graded exercise test straight yeah. after that lactate testing, and then they did sixty minutes continuous work with including four times thirty second maximal sprints in that sixty minute. Work, mm. which otherwise was a, a relatively low intensity, 60% of VO2 max. And then following all of that, they did the 20-minute all-out test. So so they had already done a significant amount of, of work at that point. Uh, yeah. So a, a fun fun study to participate in, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, usually I, uh, I always complete the protocols beforehand myself uh, just to make sure that it is tough enough because we want to induce a, a certain degree of fatigue in these athletes because that is where um, that is what's most relevant for them. If we're not testing in the field, we we want to at least do something in the laboratory that is actually fatiguing them, so we can see what is the performance when they are quite fatigued. So a good pointer is if I max if if I can just barely get through the protocol, it's perfect for the elite cyclist yeah so so now i'm asking you to speculate a little bit do you think that if if the test had been just a just a, an easy warm-up or a, a good warm-up and then a 20-minute time trial without all of the other stuff before the 20-minute time trial so they would do it essentially warmed up but very fresh would mm. the difference have been smaller between the sprint and uh yeah. non-sprinting group yeah definitely that's what many of the other um yeah, studies that are out there, they have a protocol where they actually do that and, and they usually don't see an effect. Um, mm. So I, I think that is the main difference. And that, in my opinion, that is the most important difference that they are more, maybe say, you could say more fatigue resistant. Yeah, yeah. That is uh, extremely interesting. I actually just recently interviewed Ed Monder and Steven Seiler on uh, the concept of durability. And I'm sure you've seen uh, the work that they've done on on the concept of durability. So this relates uh, directly to to that. I would say a, a great example of of applying that concept. The, just to follow a bit up because we we did a follow up study on this. Um, so we we had the same guys. We visit, revisit our lab six weeks after this three week transition period just to see might it have a positive effect later on uh, in the preparatory period. Um, so, and that's they, sorry. Yeah. That that's in those six weeks they were they were already back to their normal training. They were already yeah. kind of preparing for racing, and they were yeah, doing yeah. everything that they would normally do. Yes, exactly. So they just went back to the habitual training routines. We didn't intervene in the, in anything. We just said, yeah, just we we see you in six weeks, and then we evaluated uh, where were they basically training uh, at the same amounts, uh, and and they were. Uh, so we we compared those um, afterwards, and what happens after after the six weeks? We see that the power output at four millimoles uh, is regained in both groups uh, to the same extent, um, but the sprint power still tended to be better in the sprint group 
despite they not, they were not do, reporting that they were sprinting. Um, so maybe they still they could <laughs> yeah maintain some of that power. Um, but the most interesting thing was that the twenty minute power improved more in the sprint group compared to the control group. So they actually improved by seven percent, whereas the control group, which is just back at uh, before transition period level, um, and again we saw that come come in the increase in the fractional utilization of VO2 max, seven um, percent uh, better in the sprint group uh, compared to the control group. Um, so this indicates that including sprints in the transition period might also have a positive effect later in the preparatory period, giving an, an upper hand um, early in the pre- preparatory period. Mm. And and that is uh, to me one of the most interesting things about about the work that you've done there. Like, how do you improve your performance year on year? Of course, you do need to have a bit of a rest period at some point, yeah. but. But your work indicates, but of course, but when you rest, you of course lose some fitness, and and finding that balance between how long to rest and what to do when you're resting, how much just low intensity versus how much high intensity, that's really yeah. tricky. And uh, and it's with this study you found a, a really interesting potential protocol to use where volume could be reduced a lot, and you still do mostly low intensity training, but by including a few sprints, you allow them to get to a higher level after six weeks of being back in their mm. habitual training again. So so that that is a really interesting practical application, I think. Yeah, yeah, indeed. But uh, as you say, it's, 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 really, it's really important because you cannot just say that for all athletes that this, this would be the perfect model. I think it's important to, to ask the athletes, do you think it's fun to, to actually do these kind of sprints? Go out with the guys and have a, bu- a bunch uh, of, yeah, a bunch of sprints um and have a positive effect of that if you're if you're fine with doing high intervals in your off season then go ahead if you want to play uh, soccer go ahead do uh, do that but at least it's it's important to maintain some of that high intensity exercise also during the off season but yeah yeah you need to recharge the batteries some way yeah um Yep. And uh, then the first study, when when you looked at the including sprints during the training camp, uh, what was the, how, how did you do that study? And then what did you find there? Um, so we, we asked two cycling teams uh, who were planning uh, to go on a 14 day training camp, focusing on mainly low intensity training, which is pretty early in the preparatory period. Um, so we asked them, that half of the guys from each team uh, be in the sprint group, including four sets of three 30-second sprints. So it was low-intensity sessions for 14 days, and on five occasions, the sprint group included total 12 30-second sprints. <laughs> so the same as the acute study, uh, once, once an hour, approximately, for four to five-hour rides. Yep. And what were the findings? Um, again, we did not see any differences in uh, the measures uh, in the fresh state. So the power output at four millimoles was uh, unaltered and maximal aerobic um, power and VO2 max were the same. So sprinting did not affect it and the training camp did not affect that uh, neither. So nothing happened in the control group either. Um 
as you would expect, the the sprint power improved and it it improved by four percent um, uh, after these fourteen days. But we also found that the five minute time trial power was four percent more improved in, in the sprint group compared to the control. So in in reality, we saw a non significant two percent improvement in the sprint group and a two percent decrease in the t- control group. So together there's there was an advantage of implementing sprints um, compared to only doing low intensity training yeah. um, for 14 days yeah. so the difference between the two groups though was significant yeah yeah got it okay and uh, actually coming back to the first study uh, one thing that you also investigated there that uh, i forgot to ask you about uh, you investigated recovery time and how uh, sprint, including the sprints might impact the, the recovery. So can you talk mm. a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, acutely, if you um, if you do if you introduce these nine sprints uh, during a four-hour ride uh, and measure recovery of muscle strength, uh, we used an isokinetic knee extension peak, uh, peak talk uh, measure. So we basically strap people to a, to a chair and then see how, how hard can they kick. Um, and we saw that immediately after the peak torque was reduced to the same levels um, in both situations. Um, but when we measured it three hours after, we saw that the sprint group was still behind compared to the control group just who just went back to was fully recovered. But when they revisited us 24 hours after the exercise, we saw that the recovery was of muscle strength was equal between the two. Um, so that indicated an equal recovery of muscle strength, um, yeah, despite including sprints in a low-intensity session. Hmm. And... Uh... So you've done this session uh, as well as the protocol, I'm sure. Uh, what do you? F- how do you feel uh, 24 hours later if you include sprints? Because uh, even though muscle strength might be fully recovered, do you feel feel the same? Do you feel ready for the next day's uh, session just as much as if it was just a low intensity session, or do you still feel that something is a little bit different, whether it's neural drive or whatever it might be? Yeah. <laughs> So, so this is more layman talk, but, yeah, yeah. but I, I think it's important to have that aspect with uh, to include that as well. Um, I guess that the first time you do a session like this, uh, you feel you feel a bit more tired. You feel your legs are a bit more sore the day after, um, and that's also what we what we actually wanted the cyclists to uh, evaluate on uh, when we included sprints in the training camp and. What we saw there was that the session RPE, uh, so the perceived exertion after they done the session, we asked them the day after in the morning, um, how how hard was the, um, how tough was the, uh, yesterday's exercise, and they were rating quite high compared to the control for the first three sessions, but gradually decreasing, and on the fifth session, the last session, they were rating it just as as tough as a normal low intensity session. Um, so this indicates some kind of habituation to this to this exercise um, that you gradually yeah become habituated to. Mm. And did you find during the training camp? Did you look at the the powers of the sprints and uh, whether they maintained power or increased or decreased due to the training load? Was that something you looked at or not? 
uh, unfortunately not because we some of the guys we were included in in the study didn't have uh, power meters on their bike so we didn't we didn't record the power uh during the sessions and yeah mm. i i wanted to do that uh, retrospectively it would have been nice to see whether they gradually improved uh during the training camp or there were, whether there was a, some kind of fatigue um anecdotally um one of the guys who was a sprinter had the best 30 second sprint on the last session um mm. but yeah <laughs> that's what yeah. that's what he told me but yeah i'm not uh, i haven't really visited the the power meter data yeah um so This is a triathlon podcast, so uh, of course I'm going to ask you a little bit about how you think that this concept might translate to running and swimming. And I, I know that in the past you've actually done some work on speed endurance sets yeah. in running. So, so at least running you can maybe even answer from with some scientific data. But uh, but feel free also to speculate and uh, yeah, uh, just what you think might happen. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, just to shortly summarize what happens when you introduce sprint training for runners um the main improvement that you see is in the running economy and that is what drives the improvement in 10 kilometer performance uh, so in my opinion introducing sprints for runners or triathletes has a huge positive effect actually um What However, would, what would a yeah. typical set look like in in running or a typical workout where you include sprints Uh, the way we did it, it was uh, yeah, a, a specified uh, sprint training. So we did 30-second sprints, um, and we did 8 to 12 times. Yeah. And we have had around four minutes of, of rest. So they just, on the track, track field, they just ran 30 seconds maximum, all they could, and then they just walked back to the start. And sprint again however the issue of introducing such uh, so much sprinting is that it has a huge impact on the legs it's um, yeah, you're you're increasing the risk of uh, of injuries so i think a better way to to do it to get this hopefully to get the same effects it might be to do it on uh, do it uphill but Then we are speculating because I'm not certain that you will see the same uh, improvements in running economy if you're sprinting uphill, but at least you get the same resistance. So maybe you could do it where you have so some what's it called uh, air air <laughs> parachutes that you could yeah. Uh, that you, yeah. yeah that you could run with uh, for instance. That's uh, that's an that's another way um mm. to do to get more resistance when you're running um so the impact is not that high but yeah yeah or, or having a having a partner and having the partners like hold an elastic band yeah. around your waist or something those, those sorts of things potentially but then you're uh, screwing the partner because they are doing a lot of eccentric exercise to, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. hold you back. but uh, we true. did that as well yeah using yeah. straps Yeah, anecdotally, just for for listeners that want to try something like this, I have actually myself uh, gone through a kind of sprint block for over the last four weeks, and uh, and it was perfectly fine. I, but I know from the past that what really makes a difference if, if is if I do strength training, and mm -hmm. particularly for me, I've, everybody has their own weak points. But for me, the hamstrings are always a bit of a weak point, and I 
if I'm doing deadlifts in the gym while I'm doing a sprint training block, then it works fine. If I'm not doing that, then I always tend to get some niggles in my hamstrings. So, uh, so I think that mm. just knowing what your individual weak points are and and working on them with strength and conditioning can can help make it easier to get uh, get through a block like this. And but of yeah. course, as well, start uh, conservatively with what you know you can handle. Maybe not yeah. twelve sprints. That's that's quite a lot. So you can start Indeed. start with a lower amount. Yeah, and 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 anyways, just always perform <laughs> uh, strength training in some way. It's, yeah. uh, it's a good way to reduce the risk of injuries uh, throughout the season. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah. So, uh, so so sorry, I interrupted you there with with asking about the session. But uh, yeah, you were talking about the the running economy. What what uh, magnitude of improvements uh, did you see in the studies that you were doing? Yeah. So the running economy was improved by around two percent um, when you introduced the sprints for six weeks. Uh, as I recall, and and the running time that was a run to exhaustion uh, was twenty percent improved. Twenty um, percent improvement. Mm. But that's a time to exhaustion. Time to exhaustion. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, you usually get huge uh, differences. Yeah. So for yeah. for the ten kilometer performance, it was three uh, percent. Okay. Yeah. Uh, still, that's that's a nice improvement. Uh, and uh, and what, what about swimming? Is that something? Have you seen any research on that? Or <clears throat> no? Uh, to be honest, no, I don't. Um, but just to to speculate, um, I would say that it could it, it might have some some of the same aspects because it's for running. It's like you're you're improving your your technique, and I would. I would guess that for swimming, it might have a kind of similar effect if you're focusing on uh, grabbing the water and Mm -hmm. just have not as much pull as you as you can. Um, And but also there's not only the tech the technical aspect. There's also the mental aspect um, of it that you are focusing on something other than just doing low intensity or moderate intensity swimming just flames back forth back forth um but then you are introducing something that might be fun for for someone i think at least that also have a, a positive effect um but to say that it has a certain uh, positive effect on the performance in swimming i i, I don't dare to say that <laughs> yeah, yeah no of course um so Thinking a bit about periodization or how how to include sprints in training, of course, this is where uh, we really get into speculation. Uh, you, we you have research in transition period, and that that is uh, effective. We have seen, but also there are other things that could be effective in the transition period. Yeah. But but what would as a cyclist yourself, uh, what would how, how would you uh, include sprint training in uh, in your training? I think. Um... There's a there's a big difference between me and the professional cyclist. <laughs> to, to be honest, they, they are exercising double or three times as much as I do. So for the professionals, um, it would be more focused up. Um, when you have two weeks, for instance, where you're not competing, it could be an idea to to put down a session like this, introducing sprints, just to mimic some of the things you do in 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 competitions. Um, and to yeah, 
keep that kick uh, between competitions. Um, but I know I know that uh, yeah, many of the professional cyclists introduce this kind of exercise um, as a preparation for the classics because that is prolonged racing with a lot of short bursts attacks all the time really short high intensity efforts and then an all-out uh, effort at the end so it it is um it it's i would say it, it's highly relevant in the preparation for the classics um and probably also for for all the cycling competitions yeah do you think it's less relevant for amateur cyclists and triathletes and and especially if you think about maybe races that are more uh steady races let's think about like time trials or gravel races uh grand fondos or or triathlons of course is it less relevant or or do you think it's still it's still relevant still beneficial maybe maybe less relevant because the tactical aspect uh, is not the same that you don't you're not you don't have those uh short short bursts in in the triathlon you're even pacing it but the interesting thing is um that we we do see tendencies that the ones who introduce sprinting during these interventions they had a smaller decrease in the gross efficiency as they fatigue so this is relevant for the performance in uh, also during prolonged exercise if you can minimize the reduction in gross efficiency uh, as you see so that i would say that that it also has uh, potential for all the things yeah yeah that, that reminds me of i think it was uh your supervisor ben trenestad who did a study on strength training and how that impacts prolonged cycling performance and that yeah. gross efficiency was better in the in the latter parts of a long cycling yeah. Yeah. performance than uh, than than in a non-strength training control group and yeah. so, so, we, so actually, we basically see the same Yeah. yeah exactly yeah so so you could you could see that as yeah there are different they're the same the same benefits as strength training in, in some way mm. Mm. and uh yeah is there is there anything else uh, and any other conclusions or take-home messages or recommendations that you have around uh, sprint training um i guess maybe for some of uh some of the nerdy <laughs> nerdy listeners it's uh it's also interesting to visit uh, what happens uh in the energetic systems we say okay we improve sprint power but what is improved is it the aerobic system or is it, is it solely the anaerobic system as you might uh might think and on the training camp we saw that they on average improved uh, sprint power by 25 watts um in these sprints and we no, not a big uh <laughs> not, not not big news but we saw that the anaerobic power was the one that was most increased that was increased by five, 15 watts however the aerobic system also improved so they were producing nine watts more on the aerobic um system so it's a uh, it's it's interesting that right? it's not only aerobic Uh, and uh, sorry anaerobic um power that you improve when you introduce these spins um but another thing was also that specifically the anaerobic power improvement was greater on the third and the fourth sprint compared to the control group so 
you could say that they become better at recovering from maximal efforts and are able to reproduce those powers when they repeatedly spin. And for tactical re- reasons, that is yeah quite relevant for for cyclists. Maybe not so much for uh, triathletes, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that that is very interesting, and uh, it reminds me. I've done a, a couple of interviews with experts on sprint interval training before, and the most recent one was Michael Rosenblatt, and he did a big meta analysis on uh, what sort of interval interventions improve time trial performance, and and uh, he did find that sprint interval training uh, improved uh, time trial performance, uh, and uh, by a certain amount, not as much as longer high intensity intervals but uh but that's not necessarily the point but but also i think that uh looking at vo2 max most of many of the studies at least have found an improvement in vo2 max but maybe a lot of them are not in elite cyclists like your study was but yeah. uh, but still for for a lot of listeners actually it's important to keep in mind that yeah you, you are as you said you can improve add aerobic power to your sprint but you can also potentially based on these other studies that we have seen before add just vo2 max uh if uh, if things go go right if you're lucky yeah definitely if you're not not as well trained as these guys were um there might be some potential in improving the vo2 max as well but certainly if not, if your aim is to improve your vo2 max high intensity intervals would be preferred um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but that's again where you have the the balance. If you are a cyclist and you race a lot, then maybe just the slightly lesser energy demands and the, the lesser taxation on the body by these sprints is a nice balance of doing some high, mm. hard work, but without going too deep when you are between races and don't have a lot of time as you said but yeah, yeah i guess i guess it would in that case it wouldn't necessarily be vo2 max that is the goal in, in the elite cyclist group but but it can be for triathletes as well when you have maybe you're focusing on the on the run or the swim and but you want to still maybe get a little bit out of your bike training so so it can be a cost-effective way as we discussed previously to to add mm. some sprints to your bike that doesn't necessarily take too much out of your run and and your swim training Mm-hmm. Uh, all right so just one more question so you mentioned that now your uh your research work is uh, slightly different so can you just uh give us a little bit of an overview of what you're working on currently for people that want to follow uh, what you're what you're up to right now yeah so um ben de Keens is a professor in the nutrition so she is mainly focused on what what effects does it have to alter the yeah what we eat (laughs) basically so what i'm working on now is uh, we are manipulating the what not elite but well-trained athletes what they eat if we change how much protein do they get how much carbohydrate do they get what are implications on performance uh, if we change that for say six weeks do you already Sorry. have any any published data on this or any data no. that you, no okay no this is right. uh, ongoing yeah well maybe at some point we can have you back and discuss that because i'm sure that would be a, a very interesting topic to to get into hopefully very uh, would like to all right well let's get into the rapid fire questions uh take just one sentence to answer these and the first one is what's your favorite book blog or resource related to endurance sports 
Um, at the moment, I actually think that uh, Alex, Alex Hutchinson uh, is a Twitter handle at Sweat Science. Um, he does a very good job in communicating all kinds of endurance uh, science. So if you're not, uh, if you just want a quick overview or something, it's it's nice to to read his blogs. Uh, he's uh, yeah, he's good. He's good yeah. at communicating. Yeah, yeah, excellent. What's an important habit that you've benefited from, athletically, professionally, or personally? <laughs> Well, um, athletically, I should say it to the record that um, I've been on the, on the national teams in rowing. And especially for that, um, we were always focused on striving to do everything better, bigger, better, uh, but still try to be satisfied with the results and the goals you actually achieve. So, but it's always it's always with the, the positive thinking, but striving to become even better. Uh, than you are and that's uh, yeah that's something that just uh, lingers on uh, yeah. i guess and uh, who's somebody that you look up to and uh, admire uh professionally i would say the late Bing Saltine was uh, really one to admire and a complete and inspiring scientist he is just yeah the grandfather of many of uh, the research areas that we we have now um truly inspiring yeah yeah, that's perfect. And finally, uh, where can people follow you and your work? Uh, thing, things like Twitter, ResearchGate, or anything else that you have uh, to mention? Yeah, yeah. Um, Twitter uh, is my main account for where I yeah present new studies and just share uh, studies I think are, are interesting or topics that are interesting for endurance athletes. Um, and my Twitter handle is at uh, Elmquist Nigi. Um, but the best uh, the best way to follow uh, what we publish is, of course, on ResearchGate. Um, so you can all, you can find me there on Nigi Elmquist as well. Awesome! Thank you so much, uh, Nikki, for your time. It was uh, great to have you on and uh, to hear all the information about uh, about sprint training. Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, a pleasure. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. As always, you can find the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Nikki's profiles on Twitter and ResearchGate, as well as uh, all of the papers or most of the papers anyway that we talked about and mentioned and Nikki's full thesis. You can find uh, all of these on ResearchGate. And if any of them, I think that they, they are open access, but if any of them are not, you can just send a request to Nikki and, and you should be able to, to access it that way. I have also linked to a couple of episodes that I've done in the past more related to sprint interval training. And uh, I do want to mention that while I link to those, because I think that there are some, it's interesting further listening to to hear about what some previous research have found around sprint interval training. Uh, what Nikki has done is not the same as sprint interval training per se, because what Nikki did in his research was to include sprints where each set had fairly short recoveries between sprints then of course between sets the recoveries were long but that's already different than what sprint interval training does where the recoveries are always around let's say three or four minutes or five minutes or so between sprints that's not the case in nikki's uh, sets and also what is very different is that sprint interval training sessions typically last 30 or 40 minutes in total and in nikki's work a lot of times they were working for four hours or so in those long distance sessions so that's something to be aware of but definitely worth having a listen if you're interested in the science behind behind different types of intervals 
Now, if you are looking to take your triathlon or endurance performance to the next level, I would highly recommend that you do that with the help of a coach. Or if you can't do that, if that's out of your budget, then at least use a training plan. And we have options for both of those services and products on scientifictriathlon.com. So go and check that out if you want to take your training and racing to the next level. That I think is a great, great place to start. Big thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Check out their free resources like the free online sweat test and the quick carb calculator. And also remember to book a free consultation with the Precision Hydration team and get 15% off your first order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com. Use the swim trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina and increase your swim stimulus frequency even when you can't get to the pool or to the open water. And you can get a total of 40% off your order with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Uh, but this lasts until the end of August while the summer sale is still running. After that, the discount will still be there, but it will be only 20% because the, the summer sale won't be in effect anymore so we make use of this time this special uh, special discount period on senatesimtrainer.com we'll have another episode for you on monday it will be with uh, luis de la haye who is the head coach of the netherlands triathlon federation also the individual coach of uh, athletes like rachel klammer and uh, cyclist uh, annemiek van vleuten and uh, he's had or his athletes have had a great olympics so stay tuned for that that's an exciting chat that i have on store for you thank you as always for listening keep training smart and keep loving track long.